0: This is Reimagining Higher Education, your go-to podcast with remarkable education leaders sharing personal stories from their experience in and around the sector, including reflection and evidence for progress in the sector. With your host, Professor Judith Sachs, former PVC learning and teaching at the University of Sydney, Deputy Vice-Chancellor and Provost at Macquarie University, and Special Advisor in Higher Education at KPMG, and now Chief Academic Officer at Studiosity. Welcome. Welcome.
1: Let me introduce you to um, Noreen Goldman. She is the former provost at Memorial University uh, and also on the Studiosity uh, Academic Advisory Board for Canada. So, welcome to our, our first Canadian podcast on reimagining higher education. But before we start, if I could just acknowledge country. And uh, Studiosity acknowledges the traditional Indigenous custodians of country throughout Australia and all lands where we work and recognizes their continuing connection to land, waters, and culture. We pay our respects to elders past and present. So, Noreen, you were asked to bring an object uh, that represents your um, your approach to leadership, but also your experience as a learner. So what did you bring today to start our conversation?
0: Uh, it, that was a pretty impossible challenge, I have to say. I, I, I'm retired now, so I've moved most of the fetish objects from my desk or desks of the past into various, you know, cubby holes at home. And no one thing seemed appropriate. You know, there's a a set of gifts or there are books and and you'll have to forgive me. I've come up with something quite silly, but in a way it kind of embodies my whole thinking about this. I don't know whether you can see it completely. It's um, a penguin pillow. Try and get it in focus. There we go. Can you see that? Yep. Which a friend gave me when um, the news of my appointment as provost and vice president academic uh, happened a number of years ago. And um, there's a button on it that says um, very important person but it's on this ridiculous pillow, which is, again, a cartoon kind of penguin. And I kept it on my office chair all these years um, across from my desk, I suppose as a reminder not to take myself too seriously. (laughs) And that's what I finally landed on, thinking about some objects much more, let's say, sentimental or or, um, significant. In terms of benchmarks or milestones but i i just kept resisting them and kept coming back to the pillow um and it's kind of mocking um identity is a very important thing (laughs) so perhaps that's
1: no i think that's a great one can you tell us a little bit more about not taking yourself too seriously in the role because there is the possibility sometimes of one Taking oneself seriously, and there are consequences.
0: I think it's very difficult to um, to keep one's detachment from, you know, just the the flow of tasks and the big big challenges in a senior leadership position. Uh, people expect and project a lot from and on on you in that role, um, and. It's just natural I guess to um, start assuming the the kind of authority that the title or the role uh, is endowed with and you know all the heaviness of it uh, and the, all the responsibility and um, it's its really never been my nature to take myself that seriously in anything I've done that is to say to I've always Kept a strong sense of humor. I've I've kind of practiced a, a detachment from most things in order to preserve that sense of humor. But it, it's a challenge in a role like this to do so. And in a way, that penguin pillow was was a handy, quick shortcut reminder. Not I I can't say I always um, obliged its message. But um, I was aware often enough of that tension between the responsibility the kind of gravitas of a role, particularly these days, I would say the last several years of public education and the need to kind of keep myself in, to some degree separate from the big machine that is the institution one is, has a leadership role in. So I'm also
1: hearing that humour is is an important part of how you navigated some of the the challenges of leadership. Can you can you talk to me about that a little bit more?
0: I, I guess that's I I come from a family of a lot of jokers. Um, it's, I've always been um, uh, uh, interested in comedy. In fact, as a scholar, still remains so. Um, and um, in in the whole suite of cultural studies, literature. Um I found myself drawn to uh, both in film and in literature, my my scholarly pursuits, um, places where humor or wit or satire or comedy were were dominant. Um, i I think that difficulty sometimes in a role such as the one I've just been describing is that um thinking you're being funny or Comic or be attempting humor in often to deflate a situation, which is a very handy thing to do, as I'm sure you know, um can be misinterpreted or taken the wrong way or taken as glib. I mean, I was always fearful of being called glib. and and sometimes i I was it's just glibness is part of that that kind of. Uh, uh, texture of comedy, let's say, and the way in which one sometimes finds oneself uh, reaching for, the, for an easy way to deflate the situation rather than perhaps a more considerate or thoughtful one. But nonetheless, I, I have always, always found it to be uh, a useful way for navigating some of the pretension uh, or the seriousness of, of our higher callings. And for the most part, I think it served me well. Um, you know, I can think wincingly of some occasions where it kind of backfired, but uh, I don't dwell on those very much. For the most part, I think that was me being misunderstood rather than my, you know, being deliberately glib or, um, you know, whether it's profane or or too, uh you know, trivializing the situation that demanded more seriousness. I think it's a very handy tool, and I think there's another element to that, and it's a gendered one, um, where women are not often seen to be uh, funny or comic. I mean, this is a a general kind of social note here, Um, and I listen to a lot of podcasts, in fact, by comedians and by comics. I do to this day as I'm out running and walking. Um, Because I'm very, very interested, as I say, in that, in in how comedy uh, is um, useful, especially in dark days, such as we all seem to be living on this planet, uh, as a way of getting at something through, um, uh, I I don't know, more genial path or just a way into something that, that demands a lot of attention. And women are not often given a lot of space to be humorous or funny. It's, mm-hmm. it's kind of risky territory. Mm-hmm. It, it's come naturally to me through, from childhood, but I become increasingly conscious of, uh, of a certain risk with it um, as a woman who you know thinks she's funny or tries to be funny or it just is often funny in in social situations or or at meetings or what you know in during speeches whatever it happens to be so I, I think that's another piece of it that i've been very conscious of as well
1: but it can also be a circuit breaker and and in meetings that you know you, you if if there's you reach an impasse the insertion of of humor and not not being because i'm also funny
0: i know that's why why we clicked from day one i think we got that about each other so
1: that that circuit breaker you also have to socialize people into the nature of your humor so, so talk to me about where it did go wrong once
0: um i, I can't remember the detail uh, uh, two, two related, let's say, um, uh, fears of activity that um, reminded me that maybe those weren't the spaces where it was working for me. Rarely, but um, memorably enough, in the classroom as a teacher Mm -hmm. where, and you're probably familiar with this too, and again, I think there's a gendered quality to this, Um, but students might remark on their teaching evaluation sheet in their anonymous comments, for instance, that they found me sarcastic. Mm -hmm. That was a slight. That was perceived to be I guess instead of them saying that I was condescending or some other word that they couldn't quite find, the catch-all, especially for undergraduate students, would be sarcastic. Now, this again was not, um, uh, um, uh, you know, this bad observation didn't dominate the evaluations, but there tend to be what you stick, stick on when students are writing that because it is a reflection of, of their perception. And that's the last thing I was trying to do was, say, condescend or demean uh, their experience and their sensitivities in the classroom. Related to that, I think, and a much more, um, let's say, uh, uh, complex environment would be speaking to faculty union leaders or the union leadership where I mean, those are bloody serious conversations. You're negotiating terms and conditions of appointment. Mm-hmm. And so of course the perception is often if you're in the senior leadership management role, um, that you damn well need to be taking things very seriously. And of course I always did. But I the humor um that I might attempt to as you say circuit break. Or just kind of lighten the intensity of uh, very, very charged uh, discussions um, would would just fall flat like a dull thud in the middle of the table. And again, that's not where somebody might call it sarcastic, but they but a version of that. Nobody would have said that. But I could just tell from the adults in the room, these were not undergraduates, that um, they just didn't find whatever I would be saying very funny at all, but those those two stand out as um, um moments or to some degree kind of recurring situations, not that frequent, but those are the kind of things one remembers um, that might kind of keep you up a night or two um, force one to reflect on how one is being perceived because it it's counter to the way you want to be perceived,
1: yeah. Let's get back to, you talked about students. So can you talk to me about your experience as an undergraduate student and a graduate student and what you took from your own experience into your life in the academy?
0: Um, Oh, there's so much to say about that. Uh, Don't wanna be too boring about it. I'm sure I share with a lot of people who have pretty much never left school. Um, The... In the best moments of the undergraduate experience, certainly um, epiphanies or moments in the classroom, or in discussion with a professor, where you could really feel um, something important was happening. Um, lights were going on. Um, I certainly modeled a lot of my thinking and probably behavior on those professors, male and female, who most impressed me, who were opening up worlds to me through literature and film in particular, who had the confidence, and that was key for me, to be talking about um, these works of art that I was so passionate about, but did not yet have the vocabulary to speak analytically about or in the kind of sophisticated ways that I was starting to glean from some of the critical literature. But people in the moment without notes in a classroom and eventually, of course, a graduate seminar, um, speaking with that confidence and assurance, even if they didn't feel that way. Mm -hmm. um, To me as a younger wannabe scholar, uh, that was absolutely key. And I know that I, said in some conscious way to myself, that's what I want to be. I want to have that confidence to be able to speak to what interests me, to generate the knowledge that I am celebrating and finding and discovering to other people, and and impart the same sense of um, discovery uh, about Uh, whatever the subject happens to be. And that was true in philosophy classes or other humanities classes that I took where I enjoyed most of all conversations, all the insights, uh, you know, the the professors who made the most impact on me in both levels of of learning uh, were the ones who had that, you know, clearly their own enthusiasm about what they were talking about. That's always so important for undergraduates to know that the person in front of you is in some ways authentically registering their joy with what they're talking about. They're not just rehashing old notes or platitudes about the literature, but there's, it, it's, it's the in-person experience that's so fundamental to learning that is just, you know, some chemical reaction is happening. And um, it, of course, it becomes it's a, it's a different thing as a graduate student uh, to some degree, where you have now somewhat more confidence. I mean, you know, after the high of graduating as an undergraduate, you're brought back down to the space in graduate school where you know imposter syndrome sets in big time, and you start feeling pretty insecure about what you don't know, uh, let alone the little that you think uh, you do know. Um, and you kind of crawl yourself back out of that if you want to stay in that game. And again, model yourself after those people who are helping you to mm-hmm. to get that confidence. And that, that's how I would overarchingly describe my experience as a student, which, um, you know, has brought me to this moment. I mean, I just feel so lucky that that was a path that I was supposed encouraged to, to take and that I did take.
1: So are you suggesting that what happens is um, for you and up, up for many others is that your undergraduate and postgraduate experience, was it apprenticeship of observation um, or by observation uh, that you used to base your, your own um, approach to higher education and being a, an academic?
0: Uh, I, that's, uh, that's well, well said, I hadn't thought about it quite that way, in the latter part of that statement as an academic, but I I think that's, that's fair. When you consider that I really swerved at some point, not 100%, because I carried over my earlier learning and focus on literature, on written text to film, which is a visual text, um, with a uh, with great deal of kind of ardent interest and dedication uh, because in film I had even more opportunity to be, if you will, a voyeur. It's so much part of the experience of watching cinema is being is that kind of self-consciousness of mm-hmm. being on the outside of something that's being manufactured for you but yet is determined to bring you in uh, into the inside of that narrative, that story, that visual plane. Um, so uh, there was a kind of creative element of the spectatorship of, of the experience that became a subject of my own scholarship. Um so i I think you're right. Um, it's again, it's that kind of inside outside um, watching, observing, and you know, um, some people went into sociology and focused, uh, became social scientists to do that. But my gates were through literature, through text and narrative and the, the fictionalizing or the dramatizing of the world that I was observing. It was just more natural to me. And I grew up as a young leader. And, and I could never take, to go back to our earlier themes, uh, social science um Literature, I couldn't take it that seriously. Uh, I, I was far more willing to admire and surrender to the craft of a uh, of a novel or a you know well-made film than I was to the kind of pseudoscience I, I mean, this is terribly unfair, but just speaks to what I was interested in of um of a social science project. Mm-hmm. Uh, where you know predicting human behavior seemed far less tenable than a novel was working through, <laughs> a novel was working out. So that's a kind of long-winded yes to your question.
1: So you talk about, you talked about um, insider-outsider perspective. Where you are now, you you you're still an insider, but you're an outsider in terms of understanding what's happening in higher education. How would you compare student experience, contemporary student experience at the university? with the experience that you had as a student?
0: Uh, you know, I'm I'm not in the classroom these days, so I can only speculate and based on the, you know, many, many, many conversations I've had over the last recent years with students, both undergraduate and graduate. Um, well, there's technology to say the least. I mean, they are distracted by many more things than I was. Um, their um, concerns about um, their futures I think are far more pressing uh, than was the case for me. Um, I was at once naive but also inhabiting a far more uh, or a a far less stressed I think undergraduate experience. Um, I I believed that something would come out of all that learning, that I would get a job in something. I'm not sure undergraduate students have the confidence um, to to say that with 100% conviction these days. There's so much more fragmentation of of the social environment which they're in, of course not to mention the economic prospects um, seem kind of doomed in so many ways, the planet, um, we didn't have any of those uh, overarching, I mean, to some extent, but nothing, nothing uh, like the experience I think that students are just, you know, bumped, are are fed or being told to live every day right now. And we didn't have the technology to be, um, you know, no social media, that kind of was television and mm-hmm. film. So a kind of limited landscape for um, understanding the world. And of course, newspapers and other ways in which you would glean at a much slower pace the, you know, big movements of history or the changes that were going. Now everything is is so so much more intense. So I don't think I'd like to be an undergraduate student today, but if I were, I I think the challenges would be daunting and I'd have to find ways of surviving through it if I wanted to stay dedicated to that path for sure.
1: So if you imagine yourself still in the role of provost where you you had resources and you had um, influence and you were able to persuade the, the movement of resources, what would be one thing that you could put in place that would improve the experience of students at your university?
0: Um, I don't know if there's one thing. It's almost too hard a question to answer. Um, one thing I did that uh, stead my need to be centering my thinking on students as much as possible, because as you know, the more senior you become, the more detached you become. From that student experience. It's a kind of brutal paradox of that role. Um, but I formed a, what I called a, sounds corny, but a student success committee. And I brought together all of the people who, um, most, I would say, faculty, um, in fact, and staff are kind of unaware of, who are operating in um, that sphere of university life. That has to do with everything from recruiting students to all the whole package of retention, uh, whether ex- extracurricular um, services, um, options for advanced skill training, um, social activities, housing, food, food waste, um, just the day to day experience of being a student. That is now, you know, there's there's considerable infrastructure dedicated in post-secondary education to the student experience in a way I doubt really existed to the same degree or investment in my time, um, as well as, um, of course, uh, wellness, counseling, um, all of that. And so what I did was I brought together all of the directors the staff the managers in charge of all of those units and there were about twenty five of them mm-hmm. um who didn't really interact with each other except glancingly and i dedicated uh several hours a month to hearing from every person they would just give as informal as they liked Uh, reports, oral reports on what was concerning them, what was happening at the coalface in their offices, in their units. And I learned a great deal about that from the challenges that were not necessarily on my radar at all about, let's say, student housing or problems in the cafeteria or problems getting access to a service on campus. Uh, or the under resourced nature of this unit or that unit, or the lack of responsiveness from a certain faculty uh, unit. Um, so it doesn't really answer your question, but that is the way I tried to deal with that very question in a senior role to give myself a sense of being in touch, even though I wasn't talking to students directly, but I was talking in a way to their liaisons or their minders. Um, and able to make some improvements slowly as I could find resources to um, cover off where where I could see gaps. And what was, I think, healthy for the group, and for me as chair of that group, was a, a bigger an understanding of a bigger picture that had to do with all the ways in which the student experience is inflected, and all the points of intersection. That they all have. It's you know, it's a fairly complex thing. Um, an institution, uh, as um, as post-secondary institutions are, to be responsible on so many levels for students. It's so much more than just the three hours in a classroom a week or whatever happens to be. So you. Um, so I would you know yeah. So, so you get them
1: to understand each other's business. Absolutely. And so they're much more connected, much more joined up. And Correct. less duplication?
0: Less, sorry? Less duplication. Less duplication for sure. Um, although there wasn't that much of that. I mean, in fact, because they were working in their silos doing their thing. Um, so it wasn't so much duplication in that bureaucratic way, as, although, of course, our, our conversations led to the very bureaucratic challenges students did have to deal with to go from this office to that building, to that place to get something done. That was not so much duplication, but just kind of a lack of understanding of uh, that the institution and of... Um, um, how much more streamlined things could be if everybody was just focused on mm-hmm. on process a little bit more coherently. Yes. yes. And um, I, that was the most fun committee I I would say honestly that I chaired. Um, not to you know throw any other committee uh, too much shade that I was part of because part of the joy, as you know, of that role is just working with really good people. And yeah. all ways and all levels dedicated to to student health and the success of the institution. But that taught me the most. Every single meeting taught me a lot about what was actually happening on the ground.
1: So, given that this is about reimagining higher education, what would be the elements of your reimagining higher education?
0: Uh, I I think about this a lot, and I don't have. Um, I haven't yet um, come to a place where I've settled completely on what that might be. I do think a lot of what we do is is broken. I do think that uh in this century, as time uh marches on um the um all the challenges I spoke of before that students are experiencing, I'm not sure the institution, and I guess I can speak of, of my own, but also of others that I've been part of, at least for others mm-hmm. that I've been part of over the years, have really quite um, uh, taken um, taken, those, taken the full measure of how change needs to happen. Mm -hmm. bureaucratically, yes, to speak of repetition and the kind of uh, expectations that we have that are in some degree ridiculous, some ways impossible, Um, not just of of student experience, but of our staff and faculty experience as well. Um, There's so many contradictions um, that I think we don't even have time to think about that we're living through i um, take an obvious example is, of course, the pressure to um, be either, you know, number one or the top ten in the ratings as an institution. The kind of pressure that puts on staff to be publishing or to be streaming their work through certain, you know, niche. This is an old story. Um, Um, dedicating their time as researchers, let's say, um, to um, discrete areas of of interest that are not necessarily connected to um, institutional needs or certainly student needs. And we're not very good at coming to terms with all that. Overused term, of course, is the corporatization of the university, as public funds have increasingly been withdrawn. And it became clear to me as time wore on in the law, and now it's clearer than ever, that it's very hard as an individual to avoid being complicit in the very things that one rails about or is frustrated by institutionally. And I wish um, there were ways of confronting together that complicity, uh, certainly as senior leaders. Uh, but I think we are, um, we don't do ourselves uh, the service of giving ourselves the time or the safe space, if you will, to be having some honors conversations about where we're putting our Mm energies. I mean, I think we have good intentions and we're doing what we do to keep the machine running and all of that. But I think, um, I don't think we have stepped away uh, from traditional practices enough to give ourselves the benefit of, of enacting real transformational change at the university level.
1: And do you, do you think that, that that sort of driving transformational change goes back to our history? You know, un- universities are the, the second oldest institutions to some. Exactly. That. And yeah. so that sort of going back to, to our history actually, for some people, is a romantic, uh, nostalgic uh, idea. But for others, it's deeply frustrating. And is, is that the tension?
0: That's, that's one way of characterising it. I mean, we are... Uh conservatories uh, and all that's embedded in that word so we might think of ourselves as um, uh, you know interrogators of authority um, and many of us you know pursue that romantic path perhaps um, to give ourselves the freedom to be questioning and challenging but the the rigidity of these time-honored institutions makes it difficult for those changes to happen, and certainly part of the part of the tension that that I'm talking about for sure. Um, don't think we allow ourselves enough space to um, try new things, try new ways of teaching and learning, um, relax some of the discipline boundaries or disciplinary boundaries. That, of course, had been built up over 150 years or so in the universities of the West. Um, You know, we're still doing pretty much what we were doing since the early days of university uh, formation, with some changes, of course, but um, not enough. I should think and you know that's a huge task but it takes it's a project that involves a lot of people and that I think was part of my frustration is I'm one person trying to have these conversations but then I got to get on with the job and even when I would get together with my colleagues across the country um, you know for possible meetings or conferences and you know, we tend to be talking about budget or finding efficiencies, and we, we fall back on using the same kind of tired language of the corporate university because we're just trying to keep our heads above water. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, there's a way in which that just leads to a lot of wheel spin. Mm-hmm. But in some respects, COVID
1: provided a disruption where universities had to respond really quickly.
0: True. So- um and and have um, certainly, I mean, what choice did universities have? They have to keep the keep the play going, keep the show going. Um, and you know, in twenty twenty, when all this started, most universities had at least some measure of um, Um, a technological apparatus to allow for remote learning or or stepped up pretty quickly to it. It's it's not that difficult. Many, many universities have been doing it for some time. So there are a lot of of good models. Um, uh, But, you know, there's a lot of stumbling along, but we kind of got through it. What's going to be more interesting than, I'd say, perhaps our self-congratulatory you know, nimbleness um, will be what happens now. Mm-hmm. Um, what kind of changes will the institutions make? Will they default back to um, some of the more tired practices? Will some of the shortcuts, for instance, um, for getting through programs or getting stuff done that happened because of COVID, uh, will they be abandoned? Um, Will it open up a risk risk opportunities for universities, or will they kind of shrink back? Um, I don't know the answer to that, but you know, in my in my weaker moments, I fear they'll retreat back to some tired practices, but but we'll see. Um, I think certainly there is far more openness, a conversation happening right now among students and staff about um, workload changes, fatigue, exhaustion, the differences between in-person and remote learning, pros and cons, all of that is happening, uh, which is good. So it's forced a lot of conversations, a lot of thinking about learning that um, we just kind of took for granted or gave lip service to before. So, So we'll see. Perhaps there's a silver lining to all of this. So my
1: last question is, what advice would you give to the younger noreen (laughs) about about herself as a leader and as a learner um hmm.
0: i'm not sure i would do anything that radically different uh from what i did do um or you know what what paths i did take i i I did take some chances. Um, I did walk through some doors that seemed to be open uh, for me that uh, I was happy to have done so. Um, and that uh, what I called a few times naive, but perhaps that romantic, that kind of openness to uh, to learning and experience of being a student. Um, i would I wouldn't change. I wouldn't want to tell that younger Norwegen you know things are going to change. You're going to feel more hurt about the, about things later on. No, I mean, I'm glad I had that it It took me It took me to very good places, a sense of um, of you know optimism and openness to learning in the world and people that i I think has has done me well. Um, So the advice would be to anybody is, you know, don't close yourself off. Um, Try to be open to possibility Don't be afraid when you're younger. It's the last time you want to be afraid of anything. Um, So I I feel very lucky, actually, feel very, very lucky that faith and whatever other conditions were in place um, took me on a path through several universities, programs, and even into senior leadership.
1: Thank you for your time this evening for you and this morning for me. It's been a wonderful conversation and it's been just terrific to make contact with you again. So keep continue to keep safe and to keep well.
0: Thank you, Judith. Visit studiosity.com slash students first for the next students first symposium. An open forum for faculty, staff, and academics to candidly discuss and progress the issues that matter most in higher education.
1: studiosity.com slash students first